0: Today is the last scripture reading and sermon in a series we've been doing on the two Joshuas. For this series, we've been looking at the book of Joshua, the sixth book in the Old Testament, and we've also been looking at text from the Gospels about Jesus Christ. And you'll recall that the name Jesus is a rendering of the original Hebrew name Joshua. And we've looked at those two Joshuas together and the call they place on our lives as believers and as a church. Today is the last in that series. And we look at Joshua 13, which is the first of a text that begins a final section of Joshua that looks at the apportionment of the inheritance of God's land given to Israel. Listen now for God's word to us from Joshua. Now, Joshua was old and advanced in years, and the Lord said to him, You are old and advanced in years, and very much of the land still remains to be possessed. This is the land that still remains, all the regions of the Philistines and all those of the Gesherites, from the Sheor, which is east of Egypt, northwards to the boundary of Akron. It is reckoned as Canaanite. There are five rulers of the Philistines, those of Gaza, Ashdod, Ashkelon, Gath, and Akron, and those of the Avim in the south, all the land of the Canaanites and the Mira that belongs to the Sidonians, to Aphek to the boundary of the Amorites and the land of the Jebelites and all Lebanon toward the east, from Gad below Mount Hermon to Lebohamath, all the inhabitants of the hill country from Lebanon to Miss Ref-olf-Mem, even all the Sidonians. I will myself drive them out before the Israelites, only allot the land to Israel for an inheritance as I have commanded you. Now, therefore, divide this land for an inheritance to the nine tribes and the half-tribe of Manasseh. The scripture reading from the New Testament this morning comes from the Gospel of Mark, chapter 3, verses 13 through 19. Listen again for God's word to us. Jesus went up the mountain and called to him those whom he wanted, and they came to him. And he appointed twelve, whom he also named apostles, to be with him and to be sent out to proclaim the message and to have authority to cast out demons. So he appointed the twelve, Simon, to whom he gave the name Peter, James, son of Zebedee, and John, the brother of James, to whom he gave the name Bonerges, that is, sons of thunder, and Andrew, and Philip, and Bartholomew, and Matthew, and Thomas, and James, son of Alphaeus, and Thaddeus, and Simon, the Canaanian, and Judas Iscariot, who betrayed him. Then he went home. Friends, this is the word of the Lord. So early in 2018, they closed down the McCormick and Schmicks over on the corner of Los Robles and Union. This was sad to hear. For there in the northwest corner, I had enjoyed many a happy hour evening over the years. For $5, you could get this enormous fish taco platter, a huge hamburger and fries. There were still other options, and back when I was a Fuller Seminary student, I would often go over there. It was one of the low-cost dinner options, which as seminary students we were often seeking after. After class, I remember classes in the evening with professors like Miroslav Wolf and Ched Myers, and we'd go to the patio area of McCormick and Schmick's after class for these burgers and tacos and to talk further about theology and scripture. I would go there often after rehearsals with a singing group. I was a part of in seminary. And then one of my best memories of that patio area came months after Jill and I had finished our seminary studies and had moved out to Connecticut. We were heading back our first year and had arranged to meet up with other friends at the patio area of McCormick and Schmicks. And that night, it was this wonderful reconnection in a time when Jill and I were struggling to get to know a new place, a new community, a new part of the country. It was wonderful to be with old friends that we had such history with many of whom were involved in leadership at their local churches so we could talk church, we could talk job, we could talk family and friends and all other subjects as well. I remember feeling in that circle a deep sense of the Spirit, all people of faith with strong relationships with one another. And as I left the patio area of McCormick and Schmicks that night, I left inspired, centered with a little more of a sense that I belong to a people, you know? And that people had been called together by God. I felt led and commissioned to go and be part of building that kind of a network out in Connecticut of friends, of church, community that could let people know and feel who they were as God's people together in circles like that one. Of course, that special on hamburgers and fish tacos, and especially that evening were just too good to last. Now they're gone. Another Pasadena tradition I was sad to see come to an end was not a restaurant, but it was an annual festival of choirs. I don't know if any of you went to this, but for a time, Lake Avenue Congregational Church would pull together choirs from churches all over Pasadena, especially northwest Pasadena. And for one wonderful night, You would hear African-American church choirs, Hispanic-American church choirs, Asian-American church choirs, Anglo-American church choirs, big-budget churches, small-budget churches. They were all there, it felt like, that night, and each, each church featured one of these choirs or singing groups, John Perkins, the founder of the Harambe Center. In Northwest, Pasadena spoke that evening on the sin of racism and on racial reconciliation and community development, it was galvanizing. As for the music, some invited contemplation. Other songs were lively and had us singing and dancing in the aisles. There was a greeting time in the service and you could feel a sense of kinship with others. And while Lake Avenue hosted it, no single church dominated. In fact, it was so democratic, so eclectic, you just knew, oh, this isn't going to continue. And of course, it didn't. And churches went to operating in parallel universes as we so often do. But for one moment, for one evening, for a period of time, there was this sense of being connected, bound together, and then inspired from that evening to go out and be part of God's work of reconciliation in the world, to be some part of that dream of community for Pasadena. So if you wanted to put a name on that sense of being bound together with one another and with God, that kind of thing I felt at McCormick and Schmicks or over at the Sanctuary of Lake Avenue congregation, that kind of feeling I know you have known in this city and elsewhere, what what would you call it? What would you name it, that sense that God is at work in your midst, God has pulled you together with others, called, commissioned you, has a purpose for you, and you belong to others. How would you name that kind of an experience, that feeling of community? Well, one way that people have named that over the years is borrowing an ancient word. We've used the term Israel. Israel. What a rich and resonant word that is. It goes back to Jacob, of course, a larger-than-life figure from Genesis. Israel was the name given to Jacob after he wrestled with God. And that name, Israel, means, of course, God strives or God perseveres. Israel. That new name given to Jacob, it became shorthand to refer to Jacob's descendants. Sometimes Jacob's family are referred to as the children of Israel, sometimes just Israel. And that family, we learn from Genesis, included 12 sons, each of whom would go on to become the figurehead of a whole tribe of people, 12 tribes united under one common ancestor, one common name, one God in Yahweh. And that's people's name was Israel. It is this ancient portrait of Israel, twelve sons or tribes united as one family under one God that serves as the backdrop of today's New Testament passage from Mark. Jesus, in today's New Testament passage, is essentially assembling Israel. He's reenacting an old story of how God calls, claims, and commissions a people at particular points and places in time. Jesus goes up to a high mountain, reminding us how God spoke to Moses and the people of Israel from Mount Sinai. And from that mountain, Jesus calls to himself those he wanted reminding us of how God called a chosen people, calling Abraham and Sarah, Isaac and Rebekah, Jacob and Rachel and Leah, all to a special purpose. Jesus then appoints 12 who he names apostles, a reenactment of God naming the 12 tribes of Israel. In this morning's text, you might have noticed that only nine and a half tribes of Israel are named but elsewhere in Joshua in the land apportionment and in other places like the memorial of stones all 12 tribes are included and imagined as part of this broad vision of Israel And Jesus sends out the 12 apostles to proclaim good news and cast out evil. And this reminds us, of course, of God's call to Abraham and Sarah, the grandparents of Israel, to go to the land God would show them and bless all families of the earth, even as they would know God's presence and blessing in the journey. That's the call Jesus issues to the 12. In Jesus, God is calling, claiming, and commissioning Israel And given texts like this one from Mark, one way Christian disciples have understood our very identity as a people, as the people called, claimed, and commissioned by God, is to name that people as Israel. But there are problems with using the word Israel to describe Christian community today, aren't there? A host of problems. There are problems with my imagining that circle I knew at McCormick and Schmicks or that festival of choirs at Lake Avenue Sanctuary or as some kind of glimpse of Israel. For the word Israel, it can mean so many different things to so many different people. Some, when they hear the very word Israel today, think immediately, what of a modern nation that bears that name? It's a nation founded in 18, or 1948 following a United Nations plan to create separate Arab and Jewish states in the region of Palestine. So many people associate the name Israel with that modern nation state that a resolution was presented by the 2014 General Assembly of the Presbyterian Church USA, and the resolution argued that greater education was needed in the church and in seminaries on the distinction between ancient biblical Israel and the modern state of Israel. The resolution failed, but the advisory committee to the PCUSA nevertheless asked churches to please make it as clear as they could that the biblical land of Israel and the modern state of Israel are not one and the same. That resolution was inspired by a Palestinian Christian who experience at checkpoints, whose land loss, and whose history of living under occupation by the modern nation of Israel made them long for a stronger distinction. They longed for greater clarity in their larger church that the biblical idea of a community called, claimed, and commissioned by God could be distinguished from a modern state from which they had experienced oppression. But another problem we find with using the term Israel today to refer to the community Jesus forms in Mark 3 is that our Jewish friends associate the term so deeply with their own heritage, history, and identity, and we yearn to be sensitive and respectful of that, especially, especially given the awful history of anti-Semitism, the horrors of the Holocaust, and the Jewish experience of persecution. As thoughtful Christians, we need to be careful of appropriating a term so connected in Jewish consciousness with their distinct identity, heritage, and history. And so we find Israel a challenging term to employ, sensitive as we yearn to be both to modern Palestinians and modern members of the Jewish community. And let's be honest, there are yet further problems with using the term Israel for Christian community especially, some problems that may even signal to many the death knell of that term for us. The problem emerges not from modern geopolitical tensions, it emerges rather from the book of Joshua. Winsome as we might find the notion of Israel as it is portrayed in the call of Abraham and Sarah, or as it refers in Exodus to the people God liberates from slavery, or as it refers in Leviticus and Deuteronomy to a people God commanded to practice justice and live out love towards God and their neighbor, we then get to Joshua. Lord, have mercy. Oh, Joshua. Joshua. And we read in this book of ancient Israel's invasion of Canaan. We read of their destruction of Jericho and A, and of all the inhabitants and of Israel taking land on which other people lived. And we wonder, if this is Scripture's portrayal of Israel, how can we possibly use the term to speak of Jesus and the community He creates? Wasn't Jesus about good news to the poor, liberation to the captive, sight? to the blind." But friends, in this, the final sermon in the Joshua series, I invite you to consider another way to read the book of Joshua in its entirety in texts like Joshua 13 specifically. I invite you to consider the notion of Israel not simply as a people or as a place, a nation or a family, but think if you would this morning of Israel as an idea. The idea of a people called, claimed, and commissioned by God. Think of Israel as an idea God repeatedly brings to concrete embodied expression. And sometimes, when God plants Israel, it blossoms and beautiful fruit emerges. Other times, it grows to become a mixed bag of beautiful blooms and of weeds. Other times, it's planted and gets so corrupted by sin, it's hard to see God's original hand in it at all. But imagine that the relentless God we serve doesn't stop planting from back in the days of Jacob through to our day. Imagine the forces of Israel invading the land of Canaan as the invasion of an idea a notion that one God, Yahweh, truly rules over heaven and earth. And imagine this notion, Yahwism, challenging all kings and principalities and powers that want to harness wealth and power for themselves. Imagine an idea that God yearns for people not to be enslaved, as a people were in Egypt under Pharaoh. But God desires instead their liberation, their thriving, that God is active in the world bringing precisely this about. Sociological, anthropological, and historical studies have found a prevailing pattern of social organization back in this area of Canaan imagined broadly in the times of the book of Joshua. Canaan had been dominated by city-states, we note, and their kings, priests, warriors, and managers lived in relative luxury while peasants and indentured workers tilled the land, tended the flocks to produce food. And they faced heavy taxation, forced labor, and military service. You recall in the book of 1 Samuel, it is precisely such conditions that Samuel warns the people of Israel about. He said they were certain to emerge if Israel took the example of surrounding peoples and were to anoint a human king. He would tax them, conscript their children, and maximize his own wealth, Samuel's warning we believe, had strong parallels to the social conditions of life in city-states of Canaan in the times of Joshua, city-states that are embodied especially in that grand mythical space of Jericho. But then the idea infiltrates the land of Canaan, and people like Rahab, the Canaanite prostitute, and her family in Jericho were taken by it. What if one God and not the king of Jericho truly ruled. And what if that God cared deeply about justice for all people and had in mind a portrait of community more connected to sharing wealth and power than seeing it concentrated in the hands of a few? Rahab and her kinship circle were taken by this notion and became part, we read, of Israel. Achan, on the other hand, though he was a so-called Israelite, hoarded gold and silver and other luxuries meant for God and for others, and for this he was deemed no longer part of this idea, this people called Israel. In today's passage, five rulers of the Philistines are mentioned. In the passage we looked at last week, five kings of the Amorites are the instigators of conflict. What if what invaded Canaan was not primarily a military force, but a notion of God-filled, God-empowered, God-bound community. And the, uh, this idea destroyed not the Canaanites as a people, but the kings of the Canaanites. What if it destroyed the notion of oppressive city-states held under kings and of the religious practices associated with them, like we read in other sections of the Bible, temple prostitution and human sacrifice? What if some of those who became part of the new God-filled, God-commissioned community were peoples precisely like Rahab and her family or people like the Gibeonites with whom Israel made an alliance? What if we are seeing a notion invade the Middle East at this time, presented with bold military imagery, but it's fundamentally the idea that God, not kings, rule. God liberates people from the oppression of human beings, kings especially bent on greed, and this God draws people together in communities of sharing and blessing, of mercy and just land distribution. We see in Exodus and Leviticus and Deuteronomy powerful portraits of justice as it relates to land distribution and protection of the vulnerable. What if today's passage from Joshua 13 tells not about a land being taken possession of by an occupying army, but a land being possessed by an idea that God and not the kings of the state rule the land. And what if the Israel that then emerged in the land was a mix of peoples who escaped slavery in Egypt and of native peoples in the region like Rahab of the Canaanites, the Gibeonites, who together with the people who had wandered years in the wilderness claimed a powerful new identity together. It was an ancient identity, but one you could sum up in a single word, Israel. I know, Israel is a tricky term to use today, given its connotations and implications, but don't give up on it, and especially don't give up on the idea behind it. God really does call, claim, and commission a people. We see it in Genesis. We see it in Joshua. We see it in Mark's gospel and the work of Jesus the Christ. We see it today in His work among us. We see it in our day. Haven't haven't you seen it? Haven't you at least caught glimpses of this God-called, commissioned, and sent community we call Israel. I saw it last month as representatives from Knox and representatives from Iglesia del Pacto gathered in Eagle Rock to share in English and Spanish stories from our individual family histories. We reflected theologically on the biblical call to advocate for the immigrant and consider ways to embody that dream together. I suspect I'll see it this Tuesday as the session that is Knox's board meets to listen for and respond to God's call on our congregation as it relates to our budget. But I've especially enjoyed seeing it at gatherings this past year, not at McCormick and Schmicks, for they are sadly no more. But you know, we do have lucky Baldwin's on Colorado, the one near Allen, forget the one in Old Town, it's the one on Colorado. And they have some pretty good fish tacos on Tuesday for just a few dollars. This past year, I gathered there with this church's stewardship committee and marveled with them at God's provision. I like to think I caught a glimpse that night of God-bound, God-commissioned community. I've gathered there with a planning team for our evening service and cherished insights with them of how we can realize the dream of Israel in our worship as we eat chicken wings. And I think my favorite meeting of all this past year was with leaders from this church to finalize, guess what, our new administrative manual. Think you can't glimpse the spirit in that kind of work? Well, you weren't there on the patio of Lucky Baldwin's this particular evening. There, we could celebrate the completion of processes to guard against sexual misconduct, financial mismanagement, and various other forms of abuse of power. Friends, this is important stuff in our world, and Lord have mercy in our church. It's important in building and safeguarding just, compassionate, and God-centered community, it's good work. But as we gathered, there was so much laughter too. There was celebration of what was accomplished and attention to seeing the document used and developed, but there was delight in being on the journey together and sensing God having brought us together. The metaphor we employed that night was a wrestling match with each of us in the ring wrestling this administrative manual to the ground, I like to think we won that night. And more than winning, I caught a glimpse of something precious, God-given, God-commissioned community. Have you glimpsed it too? Have you seen this thing we call Israel? In the name of the Father, Son, and Holy Ghost, amen.